Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning. If you are somebody who's new, let me just introduce myself. My name is Kurt, and I am one of the pastors, and I want to thank you for coming and joining us here at Crosswinds uh, for worship today. I hope you guys had a, a good Christmas and a good New Year. Anybody good? Yeah, good. Uh, that's great. Uh, we had a great one in our family as well. I liked having my older son David home and having Daniel and Deanna home, and my father was there. So it was a really good Christmas for us. But I just have to tell you guys, the one thing I don't like about the holidays is plans go out the window. Like, th- doesn't your life get totally disorganized? Yeah, this was the one part about January that I actually like. You can sort of get things organized. You can go back on the diet that you were attempting to manage back in November, and you can sort of get it all going again. And that's the same thing that's actually happening here at Crosswinds, because we were motoring our way through the book of Genesis. You remember that in the fall? Having a great time. And all of a sudden, we stopped, and we did what we usually do at Christmas time, which we did a special Advent series. And your crazy pastor tried to do it from the book of Leviticus. Like, I don't think there's any other church on the planet that did Christmas from Leviticus. But it was good. I mean, God blessed us. We learned things we would never have learned before about these Old Testament offerings and about Jesus. But we're back in gear again. We're here in January. So we're going to return to the book of Genesis and pick up where we left off in the fall. Now, let me just on-ramp you a bit with the book of Genesis. Uh, We covered the first 10 chapters in the fall, and we saw in those first 10 chapters that it was all about like big picture issues. We looked at creation, you know, how God made the planet and the universe and the solar system. And we looked at how all the problems came into this world, the source of sin, sickness, decay, and death. We looked at God's wrath against sin. The first time, He sort of like really let people have it. It's called the flood. He wiped an entire planet out except for Noah, the animals, and his family. We looked at the big picture issue of where all the different languages and cultures and nations came from. It was source of the Tower of Babel, how God divided that all up. But then after we left chapter 10 and we got into chapter 12, we all of a sudden discovered that the focus of the book changed. It went from all these big picture issues to focusing down on just one person from which God would create a special people. And from this chosen people would become the Savior, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Now, do you guys remember the name of this person we were looking at in the fall? We only really had one good Sunday on him. Abram, that's right. His name was Abram. And Abram had a really interesting deal. He started out as like a hardcore pagan dude. He was in the city of Ur. He was a moon worshiper. And God got into his life and God called him out of the city of Ur and called him to go on his own. And he really was sort of pokey about it, like we are sometimes when God calls us to do things. took him 15 years to get out of Ur and finally get over to the the promised land. But when he got to the promised land, it seemed like things were finally kicking into gear. Life was rocking for him. Things were going well. And 
as often happens when life goes well, all of a sudden a monkey wrench got in the system and a famine hit the land. Abram freaked out. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to feed everybody? How is this going to work? And he hightailed it out of the land of Egypt that God has worked 15 years to get him or into out of the land of Canaan. Hightailed out of it to the land of Egypt because you know what they have in Egypt? A super Walmart. They do. I mean, like they have lots of food there. Well, you know, it's a really well-watered place. So he's like, you know, I'm getting out of this drought-inflicted place. I'm going to go to Egypt. And what we learned back in the fall is that every crisis is actually a test. Let me say that again. Every crisis is actually a test. It was a test, this famine, to see what Abram would do when hard times came his way. Would he go to God? Would he trust in God? Would he look for God's answers and for God to sustain him and carry him through it? Or would he rely on himself? begin scheming and plotting and manipulating. Now, if you remember in the fall, we saw Abraham failed this test miserably. Scheming, plotting, conniving. He goes into Egypt, and as he's going into there, he is filled with fear because he, he has this old wife, but she's also a really hot woman. She's a beautiful lady. And he starts thinking, man, you know, if people see her, what they're going to do is they're going to bump me off. They're going to kill me so they can marry her. So he comes up with this goofy scheme where he's going to tell everybody that uh, she's actually his sister, which is sort of true, but it's not really the whole truth. And they get down into Egypt. He says, oh, she's my sister. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's like, hey, did you hear about that beautiful new woman that just came into town? Can't believe she's, she's single and she's 60. Great, you know. Uh, just scoops her up right into his harem. And then all of a sudden... Abram's like, that was a really dumb move because now my wife is about to go to the wedding night with Pharaoh, and I'm helpless. My hands are tied. I've totally ruined things. And we saw this is where God stepped in and saved Abram with a really interesting way of doing it. Literally, what we discover is some kind of sexually transmitted disease, like an outbreak in Pharaoh's household, and the wedding night is called off very quickly. <laughs> And all of a sudden, the story starts to come out that she's not just his sister, but she's actually his wife. And Pharaoh is, how, is angry at him, like, how could you bring all this on me? And kicks him out, and he leaves Egypt. And not real happy about everything he did, but God saved his skin. That ends chapter 12. Well, that's where we finished in the fall. Today, we pick up on chapter 13 where we move forward. Let's go ahead and put our finger in the text. The first thing we learn when we look at the first four verses of chapter 13 is this. When I make a mess of life, and Abraham certainly did, go back to what I was doing when things were right with God. Let's read the text. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev, now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. 
And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, Abram was a, a great leader. He was a, a great man, but his plotting and scheming and fear of the future had literally almost ruined his marriage. It almost made his wife to go from this faithful wife to the uh, adulterous wife, all because he didn't trust. He didn't uh, rely uh, on God. And what I love about this is, you know, Abram is just like us. Isn't that true? We're in a time where things maybe are going well in our life with God, things are going along, and then all of a sudden, God introduces a little crisis into our life. Uh, maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a fi financial crisis. All of a sudden, you have bills that you cannot pay. And what do we start to do? Freak out. We start plotting. We start scheming. We start manipulating. When in reality, what we're supposed to do is start trusting. Spark to be, we're supposed to start turning to God and relying on God. Now, what you need to see here, Abraham is not a pagan. He's not. He's essentially like a young Christian. He's new in his relationship with God. He, he doesn't know how much he can actually trust God and that will, God will actually come to the rescue even when things look really bad. What Abram is doing is called backsliding. Backsliding in his faith. And isn't that something that we do? We're going along well, things are going well, and crisis hits, frustration hits, and instead of trusting and relying, we slide right into sin and distrust. And what I love is you look at Abram and what he did after this Egypt adventure is it's a great model of how to get back on track after you blow it big time. Number one, go back to the beginning. He went back to the Negev back to between Bethel and Ai, back to where he built an altar, back to where he was in a good relationship with God. It's this constant theme, I'm going to go back to where things were right. The idea is he is repenting of his sin. Repentance literally means to march in reverse. It means retreat. See, he went down to Egypt, now he's going back the exact opposite way. And this is very instructive for us. Because what happens is when we make a mess of life like Abraham did, because we're tempted or because we're lonely, what should we do? Confess our sin and go back to the place where things were right with God. Go back to doing what we were doing when things were right with God. For instance, things were probably right with God when you were faithful and regular in church. When we make a mess of our life, go back to being faithful in worship. Were you in life group? Go back to being involved in a life group where you have a place where you are known by others and you know others. Go back to reading your Bible. Go back to times of prayer. Go back to those prayer walks. You guys ever do prayer walks? Where I, I, That's the way I have to do that because I am too ADD to sit in one place on my knees for long periods of time. I have to go for a walk to keep myself focused in prayers. You know, too many people, what they do is they backslide into sin and then they get stuck. Like, what do I do? 
now that I've totally messed it up, do what Abraham did. Go back to what you were doing when things were right. Go back to the place you were at when things were healthy. Don't just sit there. Repent. Go back. Second thing, learn from my experience. What we learn here is when we repent, we try not to repeat. When we repent, we try not to repeat. Now, will we sit again? Yes, of course we will. And will we probably sit in the same way? No, probably. But we try not to repeat. We try to learn from our mistakes. And what I love about this is we look at Abraham today, we'll see that he learned from his experience in Egypt. He learned that no matter how hopeless the situation looks in the famine, no matter how hopeless the situation looks when your wife is now in Pharaoh's house and all set for a wedding night that she shouldn't be having, guess what? God can still come to the rescue. He is large and in charge over all things, and nothing, no matter how dark it looks, is outside of his control. Uh, Abram learned that, that nothing is helpless. So the first thing we learned is when I make a mess of life, go back to what I was doing when things were right with God, just like Abram did. The second thing we learned, prosperity, by the way, is a harder test than scarcity. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Abram and Lot are having a problem and here is the problem. We have too much stuff. We are too financially successful. We cannot get along together. Now, where did this stuff come from? Abram and Lot went down to Egypt. They had a pretty good cache of stuff when they went down, but they came back filthy rich. Here's where it came from. When Sarai was about to get married, we learned this in chapter 12, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh sent Abram all kinds of gifts, it says, servants and camels and donkeys. And when he gets kicked out of Egypt, what does he bring with him? All this extra stuff that he wasn't supposed to have. And Lot has a whole bunch of stuff that he wasn't supposed to have. And all of a sudden, we have so much stuff that we cannot get along together. Now, here's where it gets interesting. There's a little play in the Hebrew you don't see in English that is very illustrative. Back in chapter 12, it says the famine was heavy upon them, implying that the test of Abram's faith in chapter 12 was the famine, the scarcity. But when you come to chapter 13, it's the exact same word again. It says the riches were heavy upon him. In chapter 12, the test was scarcity. In chapter 13, the test is prosperity. 
The test is how is he going to handle all of this wealth and riches? What is it going to do to him? Now, most of us are only familiar with tests of scarcity because we think, you know, that's when God is testing our faith, when we don't have enough. But this is cluing us into the fact that there is another test out there. There's many tests. But prosperity is another test. How will you handle it? And I think it's actually a more advanced test than scarcity. Because scarcity, what it does is it gets us on our knees and it gets us calling out to God. Scarcity gets us working with other people because we need community to make it through. But prosperity typically doesn't get us on our knees, but it tends to lead us away from God and we start to rely on ourselves. Prosperity doesn't bring us to others. It draws us away from others. It's a tougher test because what do we start to do when we find ourselves extremely prosperous? We become arrogant, conceited, uh, greedy. We start to be condescending towards others. We're prideful towards others. And we say, like, what's wrong with you? We can't even relate with them. It's a test. Look what the Scriptures say. Pride, which is the test of prosperity here, goes before destruction. Or in Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. God hates pride and arrogance. And look at Luke 18, 25. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Prosperity is a test. Now, notice it didn't say that it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It just said it's hard, really hard. Abram, incidentally, is richer than Lot. He is filthy, stinking rich. But Abraham is also the father of our faith, isn't he? You see, Abram passed the test of prosperity. In a few moments, we'll see that Lot failed the test of prosperity. What's the difference? Abram had riches. For Lot, the riches had him. Abram had riches. For Lot, the riches had him. I say all this just to tell you that so many of you I talk to are struggling financially. I know a number of you have a hard time just making ends meet each month. I hear about this as elders, and I know what goes on. And sometimes it's really tempting to say, if I just had riches, if I just had a bunch of wealth, all my problems would go away. And folks, it's not the truth. If you had riches, if you had wealth, your problems are only beginning because you move from the test of scarcity to take on the more advanced test of prosperity. It's difficult because the riches so easily start to have you instead of you having them. Number three, Abraham's conflict or solution to conflict, generosity. Generosity. Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and, and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. 
Is not the whole land before you? I mean, separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. We're going to look at this, at least at the beginning here, in a really practical level. What you see is there is a conflict in the family, a conflict between Abram and Lot. And at first, we're going to see how Abram deals with the conflict, and then we're going to see how Lot deals with the conflict. And what I love about Abraham is there's some great conflict resolution strategies here that all of us can apply. Number one, take the initiative in solving conflict. This is what happens. You start to get into a disagreement with somebody, and you start to get angry, and you start to brew, and you start to simmer on these things. But most of us avoid conflict. Anybody here is a conflict avoider? Just me, right? I don't like confrontation. You know, it's just not my thing. And so what happens is we stuff it, and we keep it inside. And we avoid talking about it when we're with the person. And we get with the person, and you, know, you can feel your heart like beating through your chest, and you start to get your blood pressure goes up, but you won't talk to them about it. And here's the problem. The book of Hebrews says, at that point, what we're doing is we're letting a root of bitterness grow. We're, this is not going to be healthy. And what I love about this is Abram sees the conflict, but Abram takes the initiative to solve it. You notice that? He doesn't let it fester. He takes the initiative. And folks, that applies to us so directly. Take the initiative in solving the conflict. You know when a conflict exists between you and somebody else. Somebody has to break the ice. Let it be you. And some of you go, well, isn't it their responsibility? No, don't ever make it somebody else's responsibility. It is always your responsibility, whether it's in marriage, whether it's with your children, whether it's in the office, you name it. You take the initiative to solve the conflict, especially if it's with family. Because isn't this what we find out? Abram says there shouldn't be the conflict between us especially because we're kinsmen, we're brothers, we're family. And in our homes, isn't that where the deepest and most painful conflicts break out? Because in our homes, we let our hair down. In our homes, we do and we say things that we would never do and say in public. And if some of the things we did in our homes was ever repeated in public, we would be mortified. And what we find here is take the initiative in solving conflict, especially, especially when it's in family. Look what the Scripture says, Psalm 133.1. Oh, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. In other words, behold how terrible it is when they don't dwell in unity. <laughs> Or 1 John 4.21, and this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And some of you could say, well, this is talking about your spiritual brother. If it's talking about our spiritual brother, how much more our biological brothers, our biological family, that take the initiative in solving conflict? Point one was this, take the initiative in solving conflict. Number two, don't insist on my rights. 
Now, this doesn't jump out at you at first until you look at this from the cultural perspective. In this culture, age means everything. Seniority means everything. If you are not like the, the, the senior guy, you don't count. Abram is without question the man of seniority and the man with age. Lot is the free-loading nephew who's been piggybacking along the way. What should happen in this culture is Abram calls Lot in and says, guess what? You know, you guys are getting in the way of my herdsmen. Uh, you need to go find someplace else to graze your flock. Uh, this promised land was given completely and totally to me. In fact, none of it was given to you. You're just here because I've been kind and nice, but you've grown up, you have lots of stuff now, you wear big boy pants, you go find your own place to have your family and have your things. That is the proper cultural way of doing things. But you notice, that's not what Abram did. What he does is he treats Lot as his equal. He doesn't insist on his rights, doesn't insist on his position, doesn't insist on his status, but he treats Lot as if he were a peer. Folks, in resolving a conflict, especially in the family, you treat someone as your peer, as your equal. You don't pull rank. You don't pull position. You talk to them. You treat them as your equal to resolve it. Because if you pull rank and pull position, say, I am your father. How dare you? How well does that go? It doesn't. Yeah. Thank you. I love audience participation. Thank you. It, go, it goes terrible because they, don't, they think you don't have any respect for them. So number one, take the initiative. Number two, don't insist on your rights. Number three, we find out, be generous. Abram is incredibly generous in this conflict resolution. Who does he give the opportunity to pick first? Lot. The guy who shouldn't have the opportunity to pick at all. And what happens when you give somebody the opportunity to pick first? You know that most likely they're going to take the better end of the deal. And you're going to be stuck with the short end of the stick. But this is the deal. Abram's like, I don't want Lot for the next 20 to 30 years to come back to me and say, oh, I'm on this piece of junk land because you forced me to take it. He said, you just chose what you wanted. I let you have what you wanted. And the conflict is over with. Because he let him have his way. Think about this. If we, we put all three of these steps into action, wouldn't this solve so many conflicts? Number one, you don't let it fester. You take the initiative. Number two, um, what you do is you don't insist on your rights and positions. And number three, you're generous. Think about this in a husband and wife re relationship. There's, there's stuff that's brewing between them. Let's say the husband, he senses it. He takes the initiative. Number two, when he gets in that relationship, he treats his wife as his peer doesn't bully her around. And number three, he's generous and says, you know, what can I do to help here? I'll let you pick first. What way do you want is more important than me? Wouldn't that like fizzle out almost every single conflict out there? Amen. Think about this. Even you put it in a, like a kid term. You ever have like the older brother and the younger sister who have very different opinions on what TV show they'd like to watch? 
the older brother would like to watch something with testosterone and violence. And the younger sister wants to watch something that's pink and girly. And there is no, like, equal ground between them. And they're fighting over the remote. But what happens if the older brother's like, you know what? I'm tired of fighting about this. I'm going to take the initiative to solve this. And I'm not going to treat her like she's some little inferior sister, but I'm going to treat her as my equal. And I'm going to be generous to her and say, here's the deal. We're going to watch two programs. You know, you get to choose first. I'll watch you. You can watch what you want first, and I want to watch what I want to watch second. But I'm going to let you go first. And all of a sudden, the conflict goes, it goes away. See, this is really practical conflict resolution strategy right here in in Genesis chapter 13. Let's continue in the text because we find that it moves from generosity to the other end, to greed. We find the beginning of Lot's end is greed. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Lot settled in the land of Canaan, or Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked Great sinners before the Lord. If you look at Jerusalem, there is a hill about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, which was probably the location that Abram and Lot stood on when they had this conversation. And essentially what Abram says is, you want to choose to go north from here in the promised land? I'll go south. Uh, You want to go south? I'll, I'll go north. You just choose whichever way you want. But what Lot did is he didn't look north or south. He looked off to the side and he saw the Jordan Valley. Now, notice how it was described. The Jordan Valley had rivers flowing through it. It was lush. It was green. It was described like the Garden of Eden, codename Paradise on Earth. High real estate value. This is the place Everybody wants to go. And this is where Lot chooses to go. Why? Because of greed. He wants more financial prosperity. That's all he's thinking about. Now, there are pieces in the text that we don't see on the surface, but they're very important to understand. Number one, he didn't consider the location of the land. Notice it says he went east. The promised land from that point continues north and south. When he chooses to go east, he is choosing to leave the promised land, just like Abraham chose to leave the promised land in the last chapter and go to Egypt. What he is doing is he's not learning the lesson. He's leaving the promised land and going into the Jordan Valley. He is clearly going against what is God's directly revealed will. Why? Because he looks at the Jordan Valley and it looks so lush, it looks so green, it looks like paradise on earth, and he says, you know what? That's where I want to go. That's the best place to go. Now, does he, is he really doing this because he needs money? No. 
He already has so many goods, he's having a hard time getting along with Abram. He doesn't do this because he needs money. He does this because he's worshiping money. He loves money more than God. That's the point. Now, folks, we oftentimes face the exact same challenge, don't we? We see things in life that look good. Maybe that's an illicit relationship. Maybe that's a profit that we probably shouldn't have, but we can get away with it. Things that are not ethically, morally, or biblically right, but we rationalize our disobedience because we think it looks good. We call it a good business decision. But the problem is we know we are moving outside of God's clearly revealed will. And we say, well, what's going to happen? Folks, it will end in disaster every time. Now, I'm not going to give you illustrations of that at the moment. Let me get to the next point, and then I'll come back and give you a number of illustrations to show you what I'm talking about. Not only did he ignore the location of the land to move outside of the promised land, but he also didn't consider the character of the people in the land. It says the Sodomites were extremely rich, but they were also exceedingly sinful. They were sexually perverse. And Lot seems to have absolutely no problems associating himself with the Sodomites and their wicked lifestyle. What happens in this chapter is it says he moves into this area and he pitches his tents as far as Sodom, i.e., we're going to graze my flock right up to the edge of Sodom. Go a little further into Genesis. We find out he moves from being next to Sodom to living in Sodom. Go a little further in Genesis. He doesn't just live in Sodom. He is a leader in the city gates of Sodom. He's like, let's see how close we can get further and further and further into this sinful world and sinful lifestyle and see if I can escape all kinds of consequences of those choices because I'm filthy, stinking rich. Now, how well does that work out? Let me fast forward the story a little bit, a little bit more. Lot doesn't seem to know that there is going to be a major drop in real estate value by Genesis chapter 19. It's called uh, fire and brimstone. God destroys the cities of the valley. So everything that he had in the way of great real estate value goes up in smoke. God is very gracious to him, though. God sends some angels to warn him, and Lot and his wife and his daughters flee but as they're fleeing, his wife stops, and she turns, and she looks back to, to Sodom, and she turns into a pillar of salt. And some people are like, oh, that's rather harsh. Well, here's what the deal is. She turns and looks back because she would want the riches of Sodom more than she wants the salvation of her God. She wants stuff more than her God saving her. So she turns into a pillar of salt. Lot loses his stuff. Now he loses his wife. He eventually ends up living in a cave. Well, that's a major drop into living conditions. Ends up with his two daughters who eventually decide to get him drunk and commit incest with him. So now, how does it turn out? You lose all of your stuff, you lose your wife, you end up living in a cave, and you have two daughters who are sexual perverts because they went to Sodom High School. And they picked that up from everyone else around them. Trust me, it does not work out well. Greed leads to disaster. Now, why does this happen this way? Here's the difference between Abram and Lot. 
Abram is living in a three-dimensional world. Lot is living in a two-dimensional world. A three-dimensional world of Abram, he considers the fact that God is large and in charge over everything in life, and he's intimately involved in all of our lives. Even when things look hopeless, like what happened to his wife with Pharaoh, God can turn it around in a moment's notice. But Lot doesn't see the third dimension. All he sees is the two dimension. All he can see is the fact of the glitz and the glamour and all the nice things in front of him in the city of Sodom. And he's captivated by it. And he's led to it. Now my question for you folks is this. This morning, are you here living in a two-dimensional world or a three-dimensional world? Do you see problems in life and the only way to solve them is what you can do on your own? Or do you realize that God is intimately involved in your everyday life and He can change things in a moment's notice? Let me give you some examples of what this looks like. Guys, who do you date? What kind of girls are you looking for? Just girls who are really cute? Are you living in a two-dimensional world? Or do you look for a girl who has a living and passionate relationship with Jesus Christ? who has that third dimension. What's important to you? How about this? How about sex before marriage? The Scriptures say very clearly in Hebrews 13.4 that God will judge the sexually immoral. And it says that the marriage bed must be kept pure. But what I hear all the time from young adults is, you know what? Everybody's doing it. It's like, try before you buy. You know, what's going to happen? How is this going to hurt me? And the reality is, you may end up living in a cave like Lot because God is intimately involved in life. It's not just a two-dimensional world. It's a three-dimensional world. Maybe this has happened to you. You're in school and you're studying for the final exam. The teacher is known for giving really, really hard tests. And you discover that... Uh, Floating around the student body are these tests from previous years. And the teacher usually gives one of the same tests each year. And so all your peers start looking at the previous year's tests because that seems to be the only way to make it through the course. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to go into that test, having studied and taken ethically, honestly, and morally, and maybe even fail? Or are you going to cheat? I ask you, are you living in a two-dimensional world or a three-dimensional world? Is all that matters the grade that is in front of you? Or is God intimately involved? And it really doesn't matter what the grade is because God can change the things around in a moment's notice. How about this? Job promotions. I know a number of you have been offered job promotions at times. And you think, well, should I just automatically take it? It means better pay. It means better status. It means higher honor. Well, if you just jump into it without thinking about it, that's two-dimensional. But if you start praying about it and you go, what really matters is will my wife have a church that she can be a part of? Well, I, I have a place that can spiritually nurture my children. Is this going to be good for my family? You know, you, are you thinking two-dimensionally or three-dimensionally as you go forward in life? Folks, we are people in a three-dimensional world. 
not like Abram or like Lot who only lived two-dimensionally. Last point. When I feel discouraged, remember who holds the future. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, you know, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Put yourself in Abram's shoes after Lot walks away. He walks away into this lush, green valley that looks like paradise. Lot is still in the land of Canaan. Now, we know from Deuteronomy 11 that the only way the land of Canaan had any water was by rain. You had to live by faith if you're going to live in that land, which means oftentimes you didn't have rain. So he sees Lot getting all this wonderful lush valley, and he doesn't have it because he's choosing to stay and obey what God says about being in this land. And I think he's just sort of discouraged. I don't know for sure, but I think he is. Because it's at this point when God appears to him, and there's an interesting little piece of a detail in the Hebrew. There's a small particle in the Hebrew that says the word please. It's actually not translated into our English translations. But the point is this. That particle is only used four times in all of Scripture, to describe, and it's used only at times where God is asking a human being to believe something that they think is impossible. Please believe this. I know it looks so impossible. But lift your eyes up, north and south and east and west. As far as you can see, all of this is going to be yours. You're just a nomad, just a wanderer in here. But I'm giving it to you. And you don't even have any kids right now. And you're old. But you're going to have more descendants than the very dust of the earth. Abram, you're living in a three-dimensional world, not a two-dimensional world. Things are not what they seem on the surface when God is large and in charge. And folks, this is the application for us. We're living in a three-dimensional world, and things are not what they seem. I know for a number of you, you are facing very difficult times in your life. Some of you are facing relational frustration and relational hopelessness because you are tired of being single and being lonely. And you see no way out. Some of you are facing financial frustration because you are tired of just trying to figure out how to make the ends meet each month. You say, God, will this ever end? I don't see how we could ever get out of this. Some of you are facing health adversity because on paper, the prognosis of your future does not look good at all. And to you I say, we are not living in a two-dimensional world. We are living in a three-dimensional one where God is intimately involved in our life and He can take and He can turn things around even when they look incredibly hopeless. And He can do things in our life that are beyond our wildest imaginations.
That's what God says to Abraham. You wouldn't even believe what I have in store for you. And folks, not only can God turn things around in this life, but God wants to blow your mind in the next life. Because the Bible says that for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that death itself, why it looks like our greatest enemy, is not the moment of our ultimate defeat. It is the moment of our greatest victory. Because Jesus Christ has transformed it. That the moment we are absent from the body, we are now present with the Lord. God can change anything. Now, before I close, I just want to mention uh, just a few little takeaways here. One of the things I want you to work on this week is how to kill greed and how to build generosity in your life. Number one, greed starts in small areas of selfishness. It is. That's where greed starts. It's like not doing the dishes, expecting somebody else to do the laundry. When you go to the buffet line, making sure you walk out looking like a bowling ball. You know, being greed is not allowing any time in your life to serve others because you are so busy serving you. Little areas of greed eventually lead you to a lot like life. And number two, generosity begins as small acts of undeserved kindness. It's not taking the largest slice of pizza when you open the box, but leaving it for somebody else. It's paying for somebody else's dinner when you can barely afford your own. It's helping others, not just yourself. It's sending people an encouraging card on their birthday they didn't expect. Sending people an encouraging text during the week that they never saw coming. Generosity is when you play a game with somebody even though you're so much better, you lose on purpose because you want to be kind to them and encourage them and make them look good. And maybe even most importantly of all, you want to become generous. Generosity comes from when we walk with Jesus. Let me read this and then I'll close you with just one little line. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You know, Abram was incredibly generous towards Lot, but Jesus was even more generous towards us. Abram was incredibly humble towards Lot. But Jesus, has he humbled himself even more to love and to save us. Abram took the initiative to restore the broken relationship between him and Lot. Jesus took the initiative to restore the relationship, the broken relationship between us and God. You want to be a man or a woman who is generous like Abraham, who is like Jesus? Spend time walking with him and you'll become like him. Dear Jesus, I, I thank you for this uh, 13th chapter of Genesis. So many good things, Lord. Lord, we want to be people this week who are men and women of generosity like Jesus was towards us. We don't want to be men and women of greed, knowing that selfishness and greed and desire for riches will ultimately lead us away from you. Uh, help us this week to, even in those small acts of life, 
to focus on generosity and kindness to others. Amen.